Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Andrew O'Neill. For those of you who don't know me, I'm director of the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. It's my great pleasure this evening to, to open the fifth Australia-China Dialogues Leaders Lecture. Uh, and I'd like to invite uh, Professor Ian O'Connor, uh, Griffith University's Vice-Chancellor and President, to uh, formally uh, open the fifth annual Leaders Lecture. Thank you very much, Andrew. Can I acknowledge Mark McArdle, MP, the Minister for Energy and Water, and Water Supply and State Member for Caloundra. Uh, Mr Joe Wa Chow, the Consul for Science and Technology with the Consul General of the People's Republic of China in Queensland. Mr Robert Fuller, First Secretary, British High Commission in Australia. Mr Shinya Machida, Deputy Consul General, the Consul General of um, Japan in Queensland. Captain Casper Cooper, Honorary Consul of Netherlands in Queensland. Brian Kilmartin, Honorary Consul for the Republic of Poland. Tim Lane, Chief Advisor, Australia-China Relations, Rio Tinto. My colleague, Professor Deborah Henley, the Pro Vice-Chancellor of our Science, Environment, Engineering and Technology Group. I'd like to acknowledge and thank the Australia-China Business Council Queensland for their support of the 2013 Australian-China Annual Leaders Lecture and welcome our guests who are attending the 2013 Australia-China Future Dialogues, which is held tomorrow. I, of course, would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we gather today and to pay my respects to the elders past and present. Um, the Australia-China Future Dialogues are a high-level partnership between Peking University and Griffith University, supported by the Queensland Government. This partnership aims to promote greater understanding of our region and the places of our two countries in Asia. Of equal significance, it aims to develop strategies of cooperation to respond to the key policy challenges of our time. For Griffith University, the dialogues are a testament to our recognition of the centrality of Asia to Australia's long-term security and prosperity. It also reflects um, Griffith's deep and abiding commitment to the study of and engagement with Asia. And of course, engaging with China across a range of areas is central to this. Last year was the 40th anniversary of Australia's formal diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. To commemorate this occasion, the Australian-China Dialogues held a high-profile second-track event in Beijing that evaluated the bilateral relationship through the respective prisons of economics, science and technology, disaster management and the role of higher education. The topic of this year's Australia-China Dialogues is Chinese and Australian perspectives on the future of energy security. And it touches, in fact, on all of the areas that were examined at last year's Beijing events. Energy security is clearly an economic issue. Sustained and, indeed, sustainable economic growth is impossible without access to reliable sources of energy supply. Energy security relates closely to advances in science and technology, indeed significant leaps in the discovery of new energy sources uh, due to major leaps in scientific technology. Hydraulic fracturing or fracking in the pursuit of shale gas reserves is perhaps the most high-profile recent example of science and technology having a revolutionary impact on how we think about energy security. Indeed, the, in one sense, this will deliver energy self-sufficiency to the US thus offsetting their dependence on external oil supplies. 
Um, energy security is also a critical consideration in disaster planning and response. Without access to secure and stable energy supplies, communities affected by large-scale disasters struggle to recover. In the case of the 2011 Fukushima disaster, we saw that a natural disaster affected one of Japan's 54 nuclear reactors. This had an unprecedented impact on the country's willingness to engage with, the nuclear, power, engage with nuclear energy, which accounts for more than a third of that country's total energy generation. And of course, higher education has a critical role to play in the area of energy security. I'm proud to say that Griffith has played its part in the context of Australia-China relationship. A recent highlight in this area was an MOU between Griffith, the Chinese Academy of Science, and two other China-based institutions for the creation of a joint laboratory in energy and minerals, which will involve the active exchange of postdoctoral researchers. Through this week's high-level dialogues, Focusing on energy security, Griffith is delighted to play a role in the partnership with our esteemed colleagues from Peking University and with the support of the Queensland Government to further promote understanding on the key policy-related challenges with respect to energy security. Now tonight it's my, and really what will get the dialogues off to a great start, it's my great pleasure to introduce our special speaker for the 2000, for every year we have a second track dialogue and we start um, prior to the dialogues with a leader in the field. And this year we're delighted that the annual leaders lecture would be delivered by Mark McArdle, MP, Queensland's Minister for Energy and Water Supply. Minister McArdle is the State Member of Parliament for Cloundra and was first elected to the Queensland Parliament in 2004. During his, since his election, He's held a number of key senior leadership positions in the Liberal and Liberal National Party um, in Queensland. And following the election of the LNP to government in 2012, he was appointed to the critical portfolio of energy and water supply. Tonight, Minister McArdle will deliver the 2013 Annual Leaders Lecture as part of the Australia-China Future Dialogues, Securing Our Energy Futures, a Queensland perspective on the Australia-China energy relations. Please make welcome the Minister. Well, can I start by thanking uh, the University for the opportunity to provide the Leaders Lecture at the annual Australia-China Futures Dialogue this year. It is indeed a great honour and, in my opinion, a great privilege. I'd like to start by congratulating, first of all, the Peking University and the Griffith University for continuing to provide great leadership in organising this very important dialogue. I'd also like to acknowledge Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University, uh, and for his kind words as well. Professor Jar, School of International Studies, Peking University. Mr Zhou Wato, Council, Science and Technology, Consulate General of the People's Republic of China in Brisbane. Mr Robert Fuller, First Secretary, British High Commission, Canberra. Mr. Shinoa Machida, Acting Consul General, Consul General of Japan in Brisbane, Captain Caspar Cooper, Honorary Consul for the Netherlands in Brisbane. Ladies and gentlemen, one and all, can I start by offering an apology for my voice? I'm getting over the flu and I'm hoping it does hold on for the balance of tonight's uh, talk. I want to talk about energy supply. At its simplest, energy security refers to the availability of energy, be it oil, gas or electricity, for consumption. 
But we know it is something much more than that. Energy in many ways is considered as the basic tenet of human life, a fundamental social policy imperative. You only have to look at the importance of energy and other utilities in the rapid urbanisation of China over the last decade to evidence this. Our economies are dependent on a reliable and affordable energy source. For example, it was reported by the Los Angeles County Economic Development Corporation that the rolling blackouts in California in 2001 caused productivity, wages and sales losses of $1.7 billion. That was 12 years ago. Today, as we have become more reliant on technology and manufacturing, business and even agriculture, the impacts will be much, much worse. But to me, while short-term security is vitally important, energy security must be considered in the context of long-term planning. Energy security is certainly about the here and now, but it also must be about securing the future. That is why the Queensland Government has committed to developing a long-term 30-year energy plan. The 30-year plan will identify the actions we need to take to establish long-term security. Long-term security for energy in its role in social policy, but also in providing certainty to the economic growth we desire for Queensland and indeed across the Asia-Pacific region. This evening, my lecture will focus on the role of energy security in planning for the future. I will specifically discuss energy security in China and Australia and the importance of energy in supporting economic growth. But first, I'd like to talk about the China-Australia relationship. Many people consider this to be a relationship focused largely on trade. I see it slightly differently. For me, this is a deeper relationship. This is one that has been building formally since 1972. Following decades of adequacy, the Federal Opposition Leader at the time in Australia, Mr Gough Whitlam, visited China in 1971. Mr Whitlam, in an address to the Australian Press Club, recognised that as the chance to take a constructive and forward-looking role in our region. Within 19 days of office, Prime Minister Whitlam achieved what other governments had taken many months to do. On 21 December 1972, China and Australia signed a joint communique, signalling the commencement of diplomatic relations. He then immediately appointed Stephen Fitzgerald as Australia's first ambassador to China, commencing in 1973. This period did not just define the future for China and Australia, it also influenced broader recognition. Soon after Prime Minister Whitlam's visit, President Nixon visited China. In 1972, the United States' intent was to work towards formal relations being established, which occurred only in 1979. This represented the commencement of a new era for both China and Australia in our region and indeed the world. And as they say, the rest is history but it brings us to today. We are home to more than 860,000 Australians of Chinese descent. Mandarin is the second most spoken language at home after English. 
And in 2011, there were more than 15,000 Chinese students here in Brisbane. Opportunities for international students are supported by formal partnerships between Chinese and Australian universities, education and research facilities. We're also a growing choice as a tourism destination. In the 12 months to the end of March 2013, there were over 620,000 Chinese visitors to Australia, some 90,000 more visitors than in the same period in 2012. And there were 369,000 Australians who visited China in 2011. These facts evidence that over the past 40 years, we have seen changes to the Chinese-Australian relationship. It has moved from one purely of trade to one of real neighbours. And this relationship will continue to grow and diversify over the next 40 years. But trade will continue to be a cornerstone of our relationship. And the finalisation of the proposed free trade agreement will benefit this even further. In the energy and resource sector, we have seen trade grow significantly since 2008-09. Then China's share of Queensland coal exports was less than 5%. In 2011-12, this broke through 10%, making China the fourth largest coal export destination behind Japan, India and Korea. In fact, since 2009-10, China has imported more than $2 billion of coal annually. In volume terms, this is consistently more than 13 megatons per annum. And in the first months of 2012-13, Queensland coal exports to China amounted to $2.7 billion, with a record volume of 23.1 megatons. Let's turn to gas. The global demand for gas is growing faster than coal and oil. And here in Queensland, two of the main four liquefied natural gas projects are in partnerships with Chinese companies. The Queensland Curtis Island LNG project has contracted to supply 5 million tonnes of LNG per annum for 20 years to China National Offshore Oil Corporation. I'm using these facts and the figures to show that energy security is not merely about a state and its resources. It incorporates an ability to work within global markets to secure a reliable and consistent supply to underpin domestic need. And it is that need which is crucial to underpin the economic success of a country. The China-Australia relationship is indeed characterised by these very needs. Both economies are underpinned by the need for the security of energy supply, and that is what makes the two economies have a symbiotic relationship. The investment from China has underpinned employment and economic growth right across this great nation. And it was this investment that arguably helped Australia weather the global financial crisis. And it is this investment that stimulates jobs in our economy. The CSG LNG industry is driving economic growth in Queensland, and this industry currently employs almost 30,000 people. From construction workers on Curtis Island to specialists working in the gas fields to young apprentices in regional Queensland, this industry is providing 
once-in-a-lifetime opportunities for our state. Over the longer term, it is forecast that an operational industry will contribute more than $3 billion per annum to Queensland's gross state product. In getting the gas to market, Australia is contributing to energy security in China. A long-term, stable and secure supply of resources allows China to make decisions in planning for its future. This has enabled policy to support manufacturing and industry as well as providing reliable utilities to emerging urban cities. Whilst the growth of our economies is a good outcome, there are certainly challenges in store for the future. Price fluctuations of the global market have made it difficult for industry, which has flow-on effects for government. Variable coal and other resource prices are forcing a rethink on the way the industry operates. And it is forcing the government to identify ways to stimulate investment across the economy as a whole. We need to find ways to diversify our economic strengths, and that is why the Queensland Government is focused on building a four-pillar economy around resources, tourism, agriculture and construction. With a rapidly growing economy, China will continue to demand resources for its energy needs. As a key producer of resources, Australia and China's relationship in the future will be strengthened by further trade. Before I talk about how I see the future of this relationship, let me provide you with a snapshot of energy resources and networks in Queensland in setting the scene for planning for long-term energy security for our country and that of China. Without doubt, Queensland has significant resources of gas, coal and other minerals. Drilling operations have indicated that Queensland has more than 34 billion tonnes of raw coal in situ. Our forecasts indicate that in 2012-13 we will export 171 megatons of coal, growing to 235 megatons in 2016-17. And without substantial shifts in domestic and international electricity generation technologies, coal has and will continue to be crucial to our economy. Queensland is also the leading state in Australia in the development of unconventional gas resources. There are three coal seam gas to liquefied natural gas projects under construction expected to enable export of 25.3 billion tonnes of LNG per annum. There are further projects proposed that would increase these export amounts by a further 8 million tonnes per annum. Now this is a significant milestone for Queensland because bear in mind only five years ago there were no LNG projects and only a small domestic gas market. Although the Middle East remains the key producer at around 35% of world supply, Australia may soon be the largest exporter of LNG in the world. Australia has two-thirds of production capacity of all of the gas projects currently under construction worldwide. And here in Australia, beg your pardon, here in Queensland, we have 98% of Australia's proven and probable coal seam gas supplies. And while there remain significant reserves of coal seam gas, higher prices are driving continued exploration and emerging exploration of alternate gas reserves such as shale gas, 
and tight gas. The focus of the export on LNG, there is a market readjustment in the domestic gas market at this point in time. A key concern of domestic customers is access to competitive gas supply contracts. The push by LNG-linked gas producers to ensure sufficient gas is available to meet their export contracts is adding to the current tightness in the market. And while the relationship between the LNG industry and the domestic market is complex, there would be no industry growth without the demand from the international market. And herein lies the challenge as far as Queensland is concerned and will have an impact upon the Asian region as well. The challenge is this, to acknowledge the value and right of the LNG projects, but to balance this with the requirements of the mining and manufacturing sectors of Queensland, which each equally make enormous contribution in terms of jobs, investment and also transact in a highly competitive international market. <coughs> Participating in an international market has meant whilst we have a secure system, the cost of security has consequences. And this is where we find ourselves today, an energy system that is reliable and secure but at a cost which is affecting the competitiveness of manufacturing and agriculture. Of course, there are also the cost of living impacts for the people in the state. And please let me explain a bit more about that. We have an extensive energy generation network. Queensland has about 12,500 megawatts of total generation capacity across Queensland each day. Made from coal fire, 59%, gas fire, 26%, and renewables, 9%. In fact, in Queensland, we have an excess of generation capacity, so much so that it is placing significant downward pressure on wholesale prices. Even on the hottest days we experience, we barely reach 9,000 megawatts of demand at any time. That is not an efficient use of these generation assets. To give you an idea of our consumption, in 2011-12, we consumed about 49,000 gigawatt hours. It is forecast that in 2011, pardon, in 2021-22, we will consume 65,000 gigawatt hours. The generation assets are also supported by an extensive transmission network. That is, the high voltage lines and distribution network, the poles and wires you see in the street. We now have a very high reliability built into this network, following a series of brownouts and blackouts almost 10 years ago. But as I mentioned before, this is at a cost. Overinvestment in a network based on overly prescriptive reliability standards has produced a great engineering outcome, but with little regard for the financial impact on the consumer. And this is compounded in changes to how we use our electricity networks. We are continuing to generate, transmit and sell electricity in basically the same way we did 30 years ago. The way that we now use electricity over the same period has changed significantly. Over the last 30 years, Queensland power appliance consumption has increased by 150%. Peak demand has also shifted from winter heating to summer cooling. 
of an estimated increase of more than 800% in the heating, cooling, electricity consumption. Most houses have an air conditioner, with many having the house completely air conditioned. In the same period, the population of Queensland grew by 87.5%, adding significant scale to generation capacity in the network. For the last 30 years, we've largely been able to get away with the same approach to service delivery. Burn coal, move electricity, and then use it. But the game has changed, and in some ways, the industry is caught flat-footed. Increasing costs to consumers have driven changes in behaviour. We have seen a constant focus on demand management, particularly in industry where real cost savings are achievable. We've also seen consumers simply reduce consumption because of price. And over the last few years, we have seen a rapid emergence of new technologies as households look to mitigate increasing technologies. In Queensland, we now have more than 280,000 households with solar panels. There are many benefits to clean, distributed generation, but only, only where the policy settings are right. The dramatic take-up in solar panels was not anticipated by the former government, and their incentivised schemes are now financially impacting on those without solar. Taking all this into account, and despite the historic increased demand for electricity, we have a demand profile that is starting to decline. Yet we have network costs that continue to rise. We have to get a better handle on managing the cost of electricity for consumers. We cannot build our traditional network for the peak demand experienced for a few days a year. This inefficient use of infrastructure for the balance of the year adds burdens to all consumers as we pay the regulated return on that infrastructure. The dichotomy is this. We have a secure and reliable energy network. But on the other hand, it is simply becoming unaffordable. And this brings me to a key point that I want to make this evening. Energy security is not just about security of supply. It is about affordability of supply as well. With decreasing affordability, our economic competitiveness will be crippled. This is one of my biggest challenges, and in itself is the key driver behind the Queensland Government's commitment to deliver energy sector reform. But before I talk about this future, I want to turn to China. Over the last 40 years, China has experienced rapid urbanisation. This is urbanisation at a scale that is incomprehensible for many Australians. Incredibly, China's urban population has reached 1.3 billion people, up from 170 million in 1978. For the first time, more than one half of China's population live in an urban area and it is expected to reach 70 per cent by 2030. Consultants McKinsey and Company have forecast what this means for China. They expect to see 221 megacities by 2025, with 10 of these each having a population of more than 10 million people. 
Just two of these cities would house the entire population of Australia. And according to the Chinese National Bureau of Statistics, when the urbanisation rate increases by 1 to 1.5 percentage points, 15 to 20 million people are added to city populations and the per capita consumption rate increases by more than threefold. This has, without doubt, changed the lives of hundreds of millions of China's citizens. It is said that by 2030, the estimated population living in the urban areas in China will reach 70%. This urbanisation has been supported by economic growth that has been unparalleled anywhere across the globe. This reform agenda of China has been underpinned by increasing energy demand. The United States Energy Information Administration recognises China as the largest energy consumer in the world, making it extremely influential in world energy markets. And although China has significant coal, oil and gas reserves, there isn't the production of sufficient quantities to satisfy domestic demand. Much of this relates to the cost of domestic coal, limitations in freight logistics and the efficiency of smaller state-based coal mines. This has seen China move from a net exporter of oil and coal resources to a significant importer. And countries such as Australia are able to supplement local Chinese resources to satisfy that demand. But there also must be consideration of the balance of longer-term demand. Right now, China consumes an estimated 4 billion tonnes of coal per annum, which is about one-half of the world's annual consumption. And although China has about 13 per cent of the world's reserves, absolute coal consumption is continuing to increase exponentially. Coal consumption in China is now three times the consumption in the year 2000 and is expected to double again by 2035. This is why the Chinese government is encouraging foreign investment in resource projects across China to improve the efficiency of individual mines as well as the complete energy supply chain. And this is where I see a strong future for the China-Australia relationship, broadening trade from commodities to technology and professional services. Earlier I gave a breakdown of energy sources for Queensland. Let me do the same now for China. Coal generation, 65%. Hydroelectric, 22%. Wind, 6%. Gas, 3%. Oil, 3%. Nuclear, 1%. This generation profile is not too different to ours, although we do have a high use of gas based upon our resource capacity at this point in time. And I understand the Chinese government are taking active measures to reduce dependence on coal generation and increase the capacity of cleaner generation. But this needs to be considered in the context of scale. In 2012, installed generation capacity was 1,140 gigawatts. This is an increase of 58% in capacity from 2007 and is expected to grow to 2,390 gigawatts by 2030. This is placing significant pressure supply on energy resources as well as other natural resources. And this is the basis for China making recent decisions to increase renewable and cleaner generation capacity. 
is also the basis for the commencement of the Emission Trading Scheme pilot just last month. But these are just some of the challenges that lie ahead. With China indicating continued economic reform, we will start to see a diversification, in my opinion, of a manufacturing economy toward a consumer-based economy. And heavy and light industry that accounts for over three quarters of China's electricity consumption will continue to grow. But consumer-based demand will increase at a faster rate. And as the type of demand changes, so does the profile of that demand. Just in the same way we have changed the use of electricity in Queensland, the way it is used in China will also change. And this represents a much more complicated scenario than one of simple energy security. It is, as I said, also about the affordability of that supply. I see a great opportunity for the China-Australia relationship. We are both at a time when we are diversifying our economies. Here in Queensland, we are using, as I said, the four pillars, resources, agriculture, tourism and construction, to give us the right platform for future growth. China is strengthening its economy based through a greater focus on consumerism, associated with rapid urbanisation right across the country. Here in Queensland, we are focused on ensuring that our energy sector is structured as an enabler to facilitate economic growth. We are developing a 30-year strategy as a way to set long-term policy. It will be a policy that is flexible to recognise the change that will happen over that 30-year timeline. Can I say to you, when I left school way back in 1972, in fact it was, many of the technology we had in place today simply did not exist. Mobile telephones, computers, laptops and the like. In 30 years' time, I cannot imagine the technology that will be available to us. But we also recognise the need to provide certainty, certainty to promote efficient and timely industry development. We'll also need to be able to provide clarity and certainty to industry, certainty of our collective vision, certainty of policy direction and certainty for investment. This certainty is critical for planning and growth for both business and government. And while it is impossible to precisely define the likely future of the energy sector in 2041, there is one certainty. It will look different to today. In fact, the technology that will define the way we use energy in 30 years' time has not even been developed yet. And that is why it's important of the 30-year strategy needs to be flexible to recognise the change that will happen over the next 30 years. But most importantly, this 30-year strategy is about providing the certainty to business and industry both here and overseas, including China, and ensuring we can provide energy at the lowest cost possible. Supporting the competitiveness of business and industry is crucial to future economic growth in global markets. And just as our business and industry operate in global market, so will our energy industry. There are synergies between China and Queensland as we plan for our future. And I see this as an opportunity to build on this relationship. We need to know to stay ahead of the game.
and identify what sources of energy will take us into the future. Queensland recently overturned the ban on uranium mining as an example. This decision was made in the context of an expert export market. But can I pose the question, are there opportunities here in Australia for a nuclear generation industry at this point in time or in the next 30 odd years? At this point in time, we don't have the industry base here and one would not be developed overnight. So what is the role of China potentially in developing that form of industry if we determine to go down that line? I know, China, I know China has an existing industry in regard to nuclear energy that will form an important component of China's future generation profile as it looks to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There is also the opportunity to use Australian expertise in improving the efficiency of China's extensive coal sector as well as the supply chain. The efficiency of our mining operations demonstrates the value of our professional knowledge. I also know that China will be looking to increase use of gas in electricity generation. There are now long-term commercial arrangements in place for supply, but what about future growth? Both China and Queensland have future prospects in the development of an oil shale industry. Queensland is home to over 22 billion barrels of oil shale and should volatile oil prices continue, the commercial viability of this industry is coming closer to reality. We know that industry needs the right settings to do business. This is why we overturned the ban on the extraction of oil shale in February this year. But what are the advances in technology that could reduce the higher production costs? What could be the role of China in research and development to enable such production? But look even further ahead. There is, and always will be in my opinion, a need for large base load power stations. What about the opportunities for distributed generation? What are the advances in technology that can supplement base load power during peak periods, reduce network infrastructure costs and provide enhanced reliability and security. What will be the next emerging technology? Take solar as an example. China has been a leader in bringing this product to market at a scale which has changed the cost-benefit ratio so that they are a viable alternative. Together, we have a clear responsibility to encourage investment in new and innovative technologies. And in part, that's what the 30-year plan is all about. It will allow us individually to remain globally competitive, better weather the shocks of changing resource prices, and ultimately provide us with energy security for the future. I cannot miss this opportunity to make it very clear that Queensland is open for business. Queensland is a great state in which to do business. We have a stable political environment, supported by an industry with the capacity and expertise to deliver. Australia is the first country in the world where industry has built three LNG projects in the same location, fence line to fence line, and they are based right here in this state. Investment in Gladstone, the LNG hub, has skyrocketed. More than $100 billion worth of infrastructure projects are planned or under construction. 
it is clear the city is a world-class hub meeting the world's energy demand. And we're able to use our location as a gateway to Asia, and we will continue to use this as a market advantage. We have recognised the importance of resources and have made it a key pillar of our economy. That means that we are doing everything we can to support the growth of this sector. We have established the Resources Cabinet Committee, a dedicated committee that reduces red tape and makes Queensland a more attractive place to do business. We're also looking at statewide infrastructure, recognising that infrastructure is crucial to productivity growth and connecting resource production and markets. In driving infrastructure construction, we've established Infrastructure Queensland to advise on long-term priorities and ongoing management to get the highest capacity from existing infrastructure. We've also established Projects Queensland to look at new ways to unlock private sector capital and commercial expertise to deliver crucial economic infrastructure. And it is this infrastructure, such as ports and rail, which will unlock energy resources for the world market. The government is committed to engaging with the private sector to unlock, um, to unlock those resources and service the Asian market and indeed across the world. There is a tagline which we use to describe Queensland and our future. Great state, great opportunity. And this government is committed to doing what it takes to achieve that great opportunity. In closing tonight, I would like to reiterate a couple of key points I have made. The first is this. Energy security is not just about a secure and reliable supply. It is also about that supply being affordable. If you separate cost and reliability, you will move to a point where we are today in Queensland, where prices are impacting on the cost of business and industry. The second is that there is a much greater relationship between energy security and economic policy than publicly recognised. Both China and Queensland are now going through periods of economic reform and the success of these reforms will ultimately be largely dependent on how energy security and affordability can be achieved within those reforms. Finally, the China-Australia relationship is symbiotic when it comes to energy security. China will continue to source energy sources from Australia, supporting Australia's continued economic growth but just like the LNG projects, I anticipate we will see much greater participation of China in the resource industry in Queensland, and that is an issue we endorse and sincerely hope will occur. I also see a further maturing of the relationship as we share research and development, emerging technologies and share professional services. So despite our different heritage, China and Australia, particularly Queensland, share a common future. We are about to embark on a period which will demand resilient economies. The last 40 years has seen this relationship grow. The next 40 years will see this relationship mature as we work in collaboration and partnership to deliver a secure and affordable energy future. I thank you very much.
thank you very much. I know it's uh, getting not uh, getting late, not really, although not that late. I'm going to keep my uh, remarks rather short. Uh, I'm a professor f uh, of international political economy from the School of International Studies, Peking University. Um, the uh, leadership of my university were going to have somebody uh, present, but for two reasons. One was because of a last minute of change of schedule. Second is because we have a significant delays in some of the flights into town. That's why I'm standing up here. I was not prepared. But in any case, I'm a member of the university. Uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, be asked to stand, step up to the podium to express our appreciation to uh, Griffiths Griffiths University, especially Professor Andrew O'Neill and others for making this possible. The second track dialogue on Australia-China issues is very important. Um, frankly speaking, in China, both in academic discussions as well as in public policy, foreign policy making, Australia does not rank that high. Uh, we have many, many countries, beginning with land neighbors, the United States, even before Edward Snowden, to, uh, <laughs> to work on. So this is a very important initiative. Somebody has to be doing the work. And uh, Peking University is honored to be selected to do this. And um, we are happy to have the endorsement of uh, Madam Gillard, who announced you know, the start of the forum when she visited our university. And by the way, uh, Mr. Kevin Rudd well, was hired as a, an honorary professor. I don't know how much he got paid <laughs> or if he ever had a chance to deliver a well-prepared lecture as you and I do sometimes. If you and I don't do it, we don't get paid. But in any case, um, second track dialogues are meaningful. I myself just walked out, uh, came from a second track dialogue with uh, a group of economists and bankers as well as university professors with the United States. And we write memos to both governments of consensus that one of the points is China should make a stronger effort to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations and the United States ought to welcome. So we look forward to uh, similar uh, outcomes from this particular exercise as well. We need to track it, being tracked to, it's not just a bunch of academics sitting together and uh, convince ourselves. It's trying to influence policy making on both sides. Now, I uh, listened to uh, the Honorable Minister's talk. Several keywords resonate quite strongly, and it's in many ways his talk provided a, uh, an important and meaningful uh, way for us to open, for us to think through tomorrow, so, uh, to begin the actual conversation tomorrow. One is that between China and Australia, and Queensland State in particular, we have a symbiotic relationship in energy. And this is something we ourselves need to work on harder, that is to say, to how to move this from being trade, mainly trade-based, to a mutual investment both ways. And more specifically, in my own mind, coal and gas, uh, renewables, including uranium and even uh, the uh, uh, and renewables, 
in all these areas, uh, both in science and technology, especially management policies, China, uh, different parts of China, beginning from universities to enterprise and even in national policy making, we have a lot to learn from Australia. A second key word uh, I heard, which really is uh, innovative and sometimes is quite missing in academic discussions, is your focus on making energy affordable. And uh, that especially is particularly true for China's utilization of more imported LNG uh, from abroad. Should you know the uh, gas price in China, the reform process proceeds faster, I believe we could have done uh, much better in uh, speeding up the import of natural gas and deal with the pollution problems that's plaguing Beijing and many of our neighboring cities. Uh, last but not least, the, the key word I heard is that re reforms, both in China and uh, in Australia as well, in the energy economy and other economies, will be having a tremendous impact on uh, how our two economies function. And the natural economic geography is such that China and different states of Australia, uh, especially coastal China, in spite of what other reservations we have or other geostrategic uncertainties, we just have to interact with, with each other in all the four issue areas you need. I put them in a slightly different order. Resources, agriculture, construction, and tourism. Um, because construction comes through because you know, we need to retool many of our buildings so that we uh, make them more energy efficient and more comfortable for ourselves. But if there was one word that was missing, is there a way to do it? Professors like to think they have something new to say. <laughs> is, Inside of politicians. <laughs> um, I'm not that familiar with Australian discussions about China, but beginning to familiarize myself with some of the discussions about energy and uh, two-way investment. The word I have not heard that much, and I do encourage under your leadership more businesses from uh, the state of Queensland to think along those lines. That's how to pursue vertical integration mm -hmm. with China. Mm -hmm. Don't just think about China as a partner to trade with mm -hmm. or a source to attract investment into Australia. Think about China's industry as a place, energy industry and what else, as a place for Australian businesses to pursue vertical integration <coughs> into China. And that, uh, you know, we, we, uh, that, that seems to me uh, is a line of, uh, um, is something we have not heard as much, but it would be due to the mutual benefit of the long term, what you said, 30 years or longer um, welfare of both societies, beginning with the state. Now, on that note, I should wrap up. I look forward to uh, a productive day of conversation tomorrow. Thank you very much. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.